Hello, and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. The room I'm in today isn't in the UK, it's here in North America, and I'm here with Daniel Hannan in the room. Welcome to Hello, room Douglas. For Hello. Tell us a little bit about where we are and what we're doing here and why, uh, why we've come. We are at the top of a very steep hill in eastern Vermont, and if you were able to look out of these windows, you would see nothing around you except endless slopes of pine and spruce and birch and maple. This is the cottage built by Milton Friedman, who George uh, Schultz described as the most influential man of the 20th century, great free market economist. And I'm guessing that he would look out of these windows and think his great thoughts. This is where he wrote a lot of his books. Uh, the cottage is called Capitap, which I think is an unwontedly clumsy phrase. For someone who was so articulate and such a good wordsmith, it's... Right, capitalism like... and freedom. But I mean, from, from the guy who, who coined all these phrases about, you know, uh, uh, society doesn't have a conscience, only people do, and this kind of stuff, it, uh, un unusually uh, un-euphonic name. Uh, but, it, 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 you know, it's, a, it's a, a, a thought about where we are is... This is wilderness. This uh, You look out of here, uh, we're at the top of a hill, we can see in every direction, and it looks pretty much as it would have looked to the first people. It's pretty rugged. You can see New Hampshire in the distance. Yeah. Um, it's Vermont, mountains, Green Mountains, everywhere. lakes, and forest. And But, you know, go back uh, 100 and something years, and this would have all been farmland. And you can see, we were walking around here, we could see the remnants of... Uh, of ruined cottages and walls and livestock pens. It's a very good example of what is nowadays called rewilding. And it happened because the country was getting richer. Basically, this was this was farmland, but it was poor, thin, rocky soil. As soon as the Midwest was opened for settlement, the people from here decanted. They didn't have an agricultural subsidy to, to keep them here. They, were, they acted, they were driven by self-interest, and nature poured back in. And this is one of the, the points that I think Milton Friedman would have enjoyed. He was, you know, he built this house in the earliest days of the kind of green movement. But he would have really enjoyed this point that the best thing you can do for the environment is to become rich. We've seen quite a bit of it here, haven't we? We've seen um, deer and wild turkey and, and, and right. the, even the odd chipmunk. Right. And this is the funny thing. So you're in a, in a wealthy country, uh, developed country, and you have the, the coyotes and the wolves and so on are all coming back. That is not true in poor countries. Mm. Uh, they are still, you know, that the reforestation here is matched by continuing deforestation in countries that are still industrializing and are still, cook, are still cooking and, with open fires. And and the interesting thing is, Friedman would have appreciated this, not only is the environment coming back and recovering, actually the farmers, we met some of them, they're, they're doing pretty well too. They, they have leisure time to recreate scenes from... The war of I mean, what, you know, I, I had thought of Vermont, and, and I'm sure any American viewers of yours will think of Vermont as something of a woke outlier. It is an <laughs> ultra-liberal... Bernie know, Saunders country. Right. The news has been slow to reach these hills, right? Uh, uh, I, 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 our neighbours here are fantastic people. They are kind of bearded mountain men who speak with this kind of weird Yankee accent of the kind that I've only previously heard in black and white films, you know. Uh, and it's not even a Vermont accent. It's this peculiar East Vermont accent that sounds a little bit more like, like East Massachusetts. Uh, and one of the guys who was show, showing us how Chuck. to, to fire, 
flintlocks, had in his family a flintlock that his ancestors had carried yeah. in the Revolutionary War on the same land. Yeah. And Chuck has not only been living in the same plot of land yeah. for generations, he's actually got ancestors who fought against the, the Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? We think of America as a young country, and Americans themselves very often think of their country as a young country. It's actually a very old country on almost any definition. I, I don't just mean in the sense that it's had a continuous regime, a continuing constitutional settlement for longer than almost anywhere else. But even as a as a nation, you know, uh, as sure, you know, Portugal is older and France is, but the, it, you know, it's, it's in the top 10. It's a much older country than Italy or Germany or most of the, the, the modern countries in the world, let alone in, in, in the, 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 the global south. Uh, it is one of the, the paradoxes that Americans still think that this is an experiment. Uh, it, it's actually an incredibly successful demonstration of stability. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your, well, let's discuss about our experience of, uh, of, mm. of, of, of um, shooting flintlocks. I, I seem to recall we had a competition. Uh, <laughs> I as, think as, I uh, won. Marksmanship comp- no, I seem to down. There were two ranges, for the benefit of the viewers, there were two ranges of targets, some about 20 feet away, <laughs> some about 50 yards away. I don't think you shot any of the ones 50 yards away. And I, I think, think I was I going got... for those even further, that you in your myopic, <laughs> elderly way couldn't even see where the targets were. That's a very good way of explaining why you missed them. You weren't allowed, for the viewer's benefit, you weren't allowed to go for the distant targets until you had hit the near targets. I think you'll find, I and I think I've got video I've evidence to show this, the, 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 the distant targets, I, I think two shots and I got two I'll targets. tell you, actually, what was, what was fascinating about that is, I mean, they were quite interesting weapons to handle, weren't they? But very, they were, the weight was very different. The weight was all in the, in the, the barrel, not in the, in the stock. Um, there was no kickback. You know, they were, they were, they were quite, and yet, imagine reloading when someone is shooting back at you. In the drizzle with all things that could go wrong. I mean, a couple of the times I thought initially you had missed the target again. In fact, it had just misfired. Yeah, Yeah, there is that. that. The one time I think I did miss the fire was with a a flintlock pistol, which actually is quite a difficult thing to hit targets with. Mm -hmm. I found it. But an extraordinary sense of history. I mean, how brilliant that there are these guys out in these hills with nobody around who come out and fire 18th century firearms, which, I mean, they, they were, it wasn't the actual one that had been in Chuck's family, but that they are self-consciously using sort of, you know, Green Mountain Men weaponry. Isn't what, that great? what I found striking, you've got people whose ancestors fought for their freedom, and they're very conscious of it to the point where they recreate mm. battle scenes for people like us. And then you've got Milton Friedman's cottage, who, in a very academic, wonky way, yeah. He's after the same thing, freedom. Uh, I think this is so important. It's how many of the ancestors of Chuck would have been able to read, let alone read John Locke, and yet they'd all been infected by John Locke's ideas. And this, this is the power of a good idea, or indeed the power of a bad idea, like the same thing happened with Marxism, that it's not so much that people are directly studying the texts as primary sources. It's that the they're talking to people who are talking to people who have, who have. And so an idea infects a whole culture. And that happened in a very good way in the English-speaking world in the 18th century. I think there was a big shift towards personal freedom. So Locke is influencing Chuck's ancestors in the 17th, 18th century. Um, but Friedman is having that Friedman same effect having, today. And so I was pondering. I hadn't heard until, uh, until Bob Chichester, who's our, our host here and who was the 
editor of Milton Friedman's Free to Choose series, this epical series that changed a whole generation's perceptions of markets and, and the role between state and citizen, uh, I heard for the first time that George Schultz, the the now still he's still going very elderly, but uh, but the, the the brilliant patriotic Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, great economist, described Milton Friedman as the most influential man in the twentieth century, and he intriguingly didn't say why he thought that. And, and I was I went away and I thought well, you know it's an odd thing to say because even in, in Schultz's era you'd say, well, how could he be more influential than Thatcher or Reagan or, or indeed uh, Deng Xiaoping, who, who dismantled the, the Maoist economic system and, and rescued you know, what set hundreds China of millions of people. Right, and, and in terms of making a practical difference in terms of human happiness, yeah. probably the most. But then, of course, you know, Milton Friedman was writing the script for all of these guys. Friedman obviously met Thatcher and he yeah. influenced, so we know that. He obviously influenced Reagan. Who used to quote him often. But... There's this also thread of influence straight into the heart of It's extraordinary. So we, he didn't actually, as far as we know, meet Deng Xiaoping. But he did have a big influence on one of the general secretaries of the Communist Party of that era, who was a great economic reformer called Zhao Ziyang. Uh, and in fact, after the atrocity in Tiananmen Square, one of the charges leveled against Zhao by the communist hardliners and indeed used to get rid of him from his position, was that he had been working with this monstrous American free market capitalist, which was true. Um, so you're, you're then left with what, what does influence actually mean in politics, right? Who is the John Locke of today? And I think if you are the guy, so, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and even Deng Xiaoping, in a way, are the actors. You know, and the actors are the people, of course, who get the plaudits and the, and the fame. They're on the silver screen, everyone sees them. Right. But they're only really able to operate within the parameters set by that era, within the Overton window, to use the currently voguish phrase. You know, the, the guy writing the scripts for those actors could be argued to be the really influential one. Here's an interesting point. John Locke would have influenced ordinary Americans. You know, Chuck's ancestors would have understood these ideas. They would have been popularized through pamphleteers, Ben Franklin, or all the rest of it. Friedman, you spoke about as influencing people at the top, the, the mm. Thatchers, the Reagans, the Dengs. Is there not a danger that we, we, we see people like Friedman failing to influence the masses, the, the ordinary British, the ordinary American, the ordinary Chinese? We, we saw in 1980 this incredibly successful TV programme. But what can we do to make mm. sure that Friedman is, is better understood? So uh, it's a really good question. I mean... Milton Friedman was an unlikely cult figure. He was very short, very fat, very argumentative. I mean, quite good-humoured. Everyone liked him. On screen, if you looked at him, you wouldn't have thought he was a natural right, representative. Right, right. Spectacled, bald, very rarely smiled. And when he did smile, it was this kind of... It, it, he had an unfortunate smile. It looked as though he was smirking at you. And yet, he had this fantastic authenticity that made him quite a cult figure. And I think that was, that was partly because his sincerity was unmissable. It was partly because he, he, he was, there, was a, there was no hint of political correctness about him. He would say quite provocative things, quite brutally, without sparing the feelings of whom he was talking to, because he wanted them to face... He felt he had something worth saying. Right. But he was also, let's be honest, quite a good crafter of phrases. Um, you know, he would say things like, uh, a society 
that puts equality before prosperity, uh, sorry, that puts equality before freedom will get neither, a society that puts freedom before equality will get both. He would say things like, governments never learn, only people learn. These are nice ways of making economics and political philosophy comprehensible, as they should be, right? Because politics is, is everyone's business. I mean, he wrote a book uh, as part of the TV series, which became a bestseller. And the idea of an economics book being a bestseller... And selling, you know, well over a million copies worldwide. Yeah. You know, uh, this was this was free to choose. And, and uh, you know, the, the TV series itself also influenced an entire generation. Now, if you watch it today, it's a bit stilted. It, you know, TV was a different beast in 1980. Uh techniques were not what they are there wasn't any animation attention spans frankly were probably a little bit different uh, and yet for people who caught that series either on pbs here in the u.s or in the equivalent channels in their own countries i think they didn't forget it it made a lot of young people question a lot of the assumptions they had you know capitalism wasn't greedy wasn't about selfishness wasn't about the rich au contraire that you had you had uh, exploitation under every other system and coercion under every other system but the market was the first one where coercion was replaced by a large degree of consensus so he's constantly making this moral case for the free market yeah yeah, yeah and and he, I, he would have i think been in a very strong position today to be reiterating his point about pro business is not pro market because he would have been a huge critic of monetary policy in the run-up to the crash 10 years ago. He would have been out there saying, all the central banks are keeping interest rates too low for too long. And he would have been a fierce critic of the bailouts. Hardly anyone was. I remember you and I were. Do you remember that? Yeah. When, the, when, the, when the bailout was announced in the US, we were at a Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. And I think you and I were the only British politicians who, had, on that day, were against the bailouts. Mm -hmm. Everyone's against them now because you know a trillion dollars went missing and no one knows where it is. And you know, but at the time there was this sense of panic. Now he would not have panicked. He would have been a, a critic all the way through, and he would therefore now be in a very strong position to say, "I told you so." But this is the interesting thing. <clears throat> Friedman is incredibly influential in the eighties and and his ideas into the nineties and beyond. But you see, on both sides of the Atlantic now. A, a new radical left. You see AOC here in the United States, Bernie Sanders, who, who represents this, this, this neighborhood around here. You see uh, Corbyn in, in the UK. At the last election, he came within a few thousand votes of, of, of number 10. Um, why, why do you think we're seeing this, this new left? I think that capitalism is... Uh, counterintuitive. I think that the instincts and intuitions that we owe to our Stone Age DNA incline us towards tribalism and collectivism. The idea of personal freedom, although it works every time, although it makes people richer and happier every time, feels wrong. And therefore, every generation, going back at least to Rousseau, but probably further, has suffered from this sense of alienation. Yeah, okay, sure, we're living better than we ever did, but we're missing, we've lost something. The world is soulless, it's materialistic, it, you know, there's something unnatural. You know, this, is, this was the, the feeling of alienation that was behind communism, was behind fascism, was behind the existentialists, was 
you know, behind the, the maybe, counterculture. Maybe the modern world feels unnatural because it is, in a sense, unnatural. In a way, it is. We've created this extraordinary miracle where we depend for our well-being on strangers who owe us nothing. But, I mean, but a system we're sitting here on a mountaintop in New England, drinking coffee from Rwanda, having Asian food grown thousands of miles. Right, away. and that and the Rwandan, the guy who harvested or the woman who harvested the coffee beans in Rwanda, has no interest in whether we're enjoying it. Has never met us, you know. But she, this is the magic of the system. We've created a, a, a set of incentives where. The best thing for her to do, and the best thing for you to do, and the best thing for me to do, all complement each other, because we we get... This is the point that every critic of capitalism, I think, misses. When they say the market system is exploitative, it, it's bad for the poor, it, 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 it allows you the, 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 the powerful to grind the underprivileged. Actually, that is true of everything else. You know, under communism, under theocracy, under absolute monarchy, under military dictatorship, you know, the Incas, the Aztecs, the, you know, modern African kleptocracies, medieval European uh, kingdoms, they were all based on exploitation. And your position was determined by birth and caste and tradition. The market system is the first one that says, if you want to get ahead, or to use the lefty vocabulary, if you want to fulfill your greedy impulses, you have to do it by offering everyone else something that they want to pay for. So for the first time, your greed is harnessed to socially productive ends. Yeah, it's also the ultimate form of internationalism. I mean, I, 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 I'm I, still of the age where <clears> I, I slightly marvel when I look at my mobile phone to think that this has been assembled in China yeah. and that, you know, the coffee I'm drinking is... From the other and side actually, this again, this was a, a Milton Friedman had a nice phrase for this, where he said, the market is utterly uninterested in who you are. It doesn't care what colour you are, it doesn't care what religion you have, it doesn't care whether you're a nice person. All it cares about is, are you offering something that I want? And he therefore, he had this nice phrase, he said, it's the best system ever devised to get people who hate each other to help each other, right? And, and, and in, in, a, in, a, you know, in a world where people do feel this sense of atomization, uh, anime, whatever, or what, shouldn't we be more interconnected? I mean, there is nothing that interconnects us better than a, a market system that encourages you to, to think of what the other guy wants. You know, what, what you, you, you can't be a successful, uh, you can't function successfully in a market-based system without a measure of empathy, because you need to imagine what your customer or the person you're providing services to is interested in. Around the world, not just here in the United States, um, but particularly in France and Germany, but also in, in China, you are starting to see a much more sort of protectionist um, mm. approach. We've had 30, 40 years, largely because of the influence, I think, of Milton Friedman, a, a default setting amongst politicians that they needed to open up their economies. Globalization was the way forward. You had the collapse of the Soviet bloc, China then opening up in the 1990s, 100 million additional workers joining the world economy, this huge boost in living standards in the West and in China and Asia as a result of it. But now you're starting to see people push back. Yeah, it's really, I mean, not everywhere. So there is still, I think, a default pro-trade setting in Chile, in Peru, in Vietnam, New Zealand, Vietnam, Vietnam, right? In fact, generally around the Pacific Rim, uh, where I think a lot of the action is going to be. There's, an, there's, an, there's an irony of communist Vietnam liberalizing this. I, I actually, do you know, I think, it, I think there's a really interesting thing that has just happened uh, in a wider geopolitical sense, which is that 
just as the 18th century saw a shift in the focus of world trade and world political power from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic, so uh, this century has seen a shift from the Atlantic to the Pacific, which is, is going to accelerate as the, as the 21st century progresses. And in, I, I think that's happening within countries too. I think there is a, a shift in population and wealth from the Atlantic to the Pacific coast of Canada, of the US, and so on. Um, you know, New Zealand and Australia are breaking every record for how long you can go without a negative, uh, without a recession, or without, in, in, in New Zealand's case, a negative quarter. Uh, amazing growth rates in, in Chile, in Singapore, and so on. Um, so just on passant, I think that's a, that's a place where we as a country need to be. And I'm delighted that uh, I think we are now committed to applying for the, the, trans uh, the CPTPP, as it's now called, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, a lot of people think that that doesn't make sense geographically. Uh, and of course, it's it's true that we're not literally a Pacific nation, except in the technical sense. Well, we are actually technically I mean, the because we own the we own the Pitcairn Islands, but, but also which are pretty much bang in the middle. The camera um, on which we're recording this yeah. is that's made. The that's the point. Nation. Exactly, and this this I think is a point that is is often missed and is is now uh, I think deliberately missed because of the Brexit debate and because of the way people have have started with their. You can only buy cameras from EU countries. <laughs> Geography doesn't matter as much as it used to. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, 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 it do, even if you say it still matters, and of course it's easier to go and do a pitch for business in Germany than in Melbourne, but, but, but it matters much less than it did before we had the internet, before we had jet travel, before we had sure. container ships. And as, as geographical proximity matters less, cultural proximity comes to matter more. And Britain has exceptionally close links to a number of the, the countries that are on the Pacific Rim, obviously Australia, New Zealand, obviously the US and Canada, but also, you know, uh, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Singapore. So after we've left the EU, we could have equal access to, you know, on trade terms, to Pacific countries that Australia would have. Yes. I, I mean, personally, I think uh, as a first step, we should join the, the TPP, which is something that the Malaysian government wants, the Japanese government, obviously, also, you know, where we're being invited by everybody. Mm -hmm. But I think we could go much further. Um, the, among the more ambitious trading countries like New Zealand, Singapore, I think we could replicate the kind of deal that they have between Australia and New Zealand, which is just total mutual recognition for goods and services and professional if, qualifications. It's legal to buy and sell something in Melbourne, and it's legal to become an accountant in Melbourne. Yeah. You can do the same in... So that, in that, that, that is broadly what the... Australian and New Zealand governments have worked towards starting in the, in the early 80s. And, and the, it, you know, the, 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 the trick is that they've reversed the burden of proof. So there is an assumption of legality, even, as you say, for professional credentials. You can go a, a Kiwi school I mean, I think that's okay. a really important one, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. In a, in a, of course. In, a, in, a, in an age when resources are a, a, a dwindling part of the economy and human capital is a growing part, that's the biggie. But also, a lot of protectionism in the UK is... The aristocracy of labour, yeah. regulations to prevent people practising a particular craft or profession. Yes. Something, I forget the statistics, but a frighteningly large percentage of jobs you need some sort of permit for. Yes. So I think the great liberalisation that would actually help ordinary middle class Brits would be this sort of mutual standard 
yes. recognition with Australia and, 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 and ultimately, you know, I hope the US, which also has that. Point. I mean, you, you need to you need two years to qualify as a hairdresser in California. I mean, you know, it could also drive down the costs of higher education because if you could become a qualified accountant in Canada more cheaply than in the UK, yes, um, you can suddenly see what you get. Happen. Isn't that that's it? You get competition. You get jurisdictional competition, um, which does not mean. A lowering of standards because you know why does anyone want a bad accountant right it, what it means is a lowering of costs and actually an increase in standards because it, it, once people can hire from more reputable places the, the the places that don't have that good reputation have to up like, their like, like the coffee i'm drinking i get the highest quality at the lowest cost exactly exactly it, it, it's extraordinary how people refuse to see this even though the so one of the i'm always struck by how the Corbynistas talk about Singapore in particular as a, a sort of Dickensian sweatshop economy. Um, Corbyn always talks about it as a bargain basement economy. Well, first of all, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with bargain basements. I mean, well, you know, I'm quite in favour of getting stuff. Poundland is my favourite right. shop. I mean, you know, it's a bizarre prejudice he has against people who want value value. But, um, but actually, it's, it's just not true. I mean, wages there are higher. You know, life expectancy is greater. Health outcomes are better. Educational outcomes are better. Public transport is better. It turns out that if you have a high-skilled, deregulated, open economy without these guild protections and without tariffs, guess what? It raises the standard of living for everybody. So you end up being a high-skilled and high-wage economy. I just don't get how people can have this... this uh, objection to it. I, I suspect one of the changes from Friedman's day when we're talking about free trade is in Friedman's day, in order to have free trade, you basically had to have the US mm. in favour. Um, the Chinese economy in 1980 is a compared to the US economy is tiny. the size of the Hong Kong yeah, economy. The, then, yeah, the, exactly. the Soviets didn't count. Um, you know, most of the rest of the world, apart from a few European countries, were, were also rats. I wonder today if even if the United States and heaven forbid, a Corbynista Britain was to become anti-free trade. There are now enough Singapore's enough. Vietnam. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I, I've, I've heard you say that before, and I'm, I, I think I'm a little bit less optimistic than you are. Um, That's just generally your disposition, I think. Yeah, maybe it may just be my my grumpy old man side. Yeah. I mean, I was in Singapore quite recently, and and talking to them about exactly this, and one of the a very senior politician there who would be well-known to any Singaporean viewers, uh, said, look, a, a country like ours, or a city-state like ours, is, is made possible in a world of free trade and open sea lanes. But a world where China and the US were telling people that they had to pick a side and started inserting clauses into their trade deal saying you may not trade on the following terms with the other is disastrous for a country like ours. That's really interesting because, of course, the Asian miracle after the Second World War started in four states, Hong Kong, South Korea, um, Taiwan, Singapore, Taiwan, and all four of them were in some sense under the Anglo or Anglo-American umbrella, and all of them benefited from the injection of capital from, from the United States in particular. And you could argue that as other countries join those initial four, it's because the larger ones acquired a similar status of, of a, a, a sort of a, a world order underpinned by, by America. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we, we shouldn't... Of course, the world is, is no longer quite as unipolar as it was 30 years ago. However, uh, you know, the US is still pretty much a quarter of global GDP. Uh, and... You know, the Anglosphere 
is a third of world GDP. Uh, and so a change of direction in the English-speaking democracies, I think, would be um, hugely significant for the other two-thirds of the world, just given the, the, the realities of where wealth is concentrated. I do worry about the rhetoric in the, in the US. I worry about the way in which people who should know better, uh, conservatives who absolutely get why free trade works and why it delivers for the little guy and why it, it helps the poorest people the most, are out of cowardice or tribalism or uh, some weird kind of polarization pretending to go along with what on one level they know to be nonsense, uh, which is Trump's trade policy. And I think they disgrace themselves and their party because, you know, the, the, the system depends on people showing the, the courage of their convictions. Friedman, presumably, would say, you know, politicians, opinion polls, they come and go, mm. Republican candidates come and go, Democrat candidates come and go, stick to your principles. Yeah. And one of the reasons why people don't stick to their principles on trade is because it's a bit like what we were saying earlier about how you have to win this argument every generation because it's counterintuitive, because it's... It, it, it's, it feels wrong on a genetic level. The, the assertions made by the Trumpies, you can't carry on with a trade deficit, we can't compete with slave wage economies, we, we need to uh, grow our own food, we need to protect our strategic industries, all of these things seem plausible. They all accord with our Pleistocene era intuitions. They are all wrong. And they all, if pursued, lead a country to poverty, as they will lead this one to poverty if, if they're not challenged. Uh, there's nothing inevitable about the, the prosperity of the United States. It, it, it's a result of, of wise policy decisions. And, and if those policy decisions are reversed, uh, the, the economy will go in a different direction. And, and really, everyone knows this. I mean, about the only issue that unites every economist of left and right is that following free trade benefits the country doing it more than anybody else. I mean, it has incidental benefits for the rest of the world as well. And yet they are all, one way or another, allowing Donald Trump to get away with this. I did, we, we just had lunch yesterday with the, the wonderful Doug Irwin at Dartmouth College, yeah. which is... In, I mean, I, I, would, I would say to anyone reading who doesn't believe me about free trade, who says, oh, yeah, but it, it only works if it's reciprocated, or it doesn't... You know, what if the other guy doesn't... What if you're dealing with the Chinese and they say... Read Doug Irwin's Free Trade Under Fire. It is the most brilliant, comprehensible, short defense, which the layman, can, you don't need to be any kind of, I'm not any kind of economist, but anyone can follow the argument. And it's, it's indisputable. I want to just, you mentioned a book there, I want to slightly spring this on you. Um, there's another book that I spotted you reading on the plane on, on, on the way over. Um, and it's a slightly depressing book because it may explain why perhaps domestic support amongst mm. middle America for what's essentially a, a liberal in the British use the word a liberal order is is under 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 threat and it's called um, white shift white yeah. shift by a, by a London professor called Eric Kaufman uh, although he's actually a, a Vancouverite by upbringing and it's a it's a long serious book full of uh, full of statistics he, he walks you through the data very convincingly He's, he's setting out to explain, well, it's not his sole purpose, but in, among other things, he is incidentally seeking to explain uh, the authoritarian backlash in the US and parts of Europe. The, the well, some people would characterize as populism. Yes. And he says, you know, is it, is it because of the financial crash? And, and, and he shows pretty convincingly <coughs> that <coughs> the, key, the key driver is demographic change. 
uh, and in particular uh, the the way in which white voters start thinking of themselves as white rather than just thinking of themselves as Swedes or Americans or whatever. Is this because of identity politics? Yeah, I, I mean, identity politics has, has played a very big part in this. This peculiar, uh, the peculiar double standard of what he calls left modernism, what Kaufman calls left modernism, where uh, ethnic diversity and identity is to be celebrated by minority groups, but deprecated and scorned in majority groups. That became unsustainable. And unfortunately, instead of the reaction being a, a civic liberal one that says we are all individuals, we should... The Luther, all Martin Luther King vision. Right. And, and what would have been a basic assumption up until the late 60s of, of the mainstream left and the mainstream right, that, you know, we should all be treated the same, we shouldn't ask to be treated differently. <clears throat> that, instead of that being the response, a constant emphasis on you are defined by being a white man, you may not intend it, but you are an oppressor class, you're born with all these things, you have this inherited... Eventually, a chunk of the population will begin to respond by thinking of themselves in a tribal sense as white voters, and they'll, be, they'll begin uh, to express their political preferences accordingly. And I think that that is, in a, in, at least in the short term, in a, in a, in a multi-ethnic republic like this one, and indeed in a, in a country like Britain where there is a, a, a large measure of ethnic diversity, I think that is an absolutely... Uh, backward and dangerous development. It's also really badly suited to the emerging condition of the United States. I mean, we were in a university town yesterday. I saw a family that looked to me like they were half probably Anglo-Celtic American and half possibly Korean Chinese American. Yeah. And I saw the children about the same age as my daughter. And I thought to myself, do you know what? All this debate they're having in America over ethnic quotas is going to look utterly ridiculous yeah. when you've got Americans who don't fit into any of these boxes. And actually, that's, and that, that is Kaufman's cheerful conclusion. Uh, he argues that actually white people are largely going to disappear in the sense that there will be a lot of intermarriage and, uh, you know, a hundred years from now, people are not going to look like the portraits from the 18th century. And he then asks the question, are, will people, when that has happened will these new populations still think of themselves as Western people? And his answer, I haven't quite finished the book yet, but so far his answer seems to be a, a cautious and qualified yes. Uh, and and he, he has a, a lot of... But the, 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 Roman, to sustain it. The, the, the Roman Republic yeah. um, in, you know, towards the late stages would have looked and felt and sounded probably very, very different yeah. from the young republic. Yeah. Um, and yet they would have exactly. identified as being the heirs to a unique tradition. Or well, indeed, I mean, look at, you know, when we were, when we were going through, as it were, in real time, the, the 100th anniversary of the, of the Great War, it was very striking that the, the British army in 1918 looked a lot more like the Britain of 2018 than the Britain of 1918. And I don't think that, I don't think that struck anyone at the time. If, if anyone at the time was, was triggered uh, or offended by that, they kept very quiet. I don't, I don't, I don't, think, there was any, I don't think anyone found it odd then. You know. So um, we, you know, we sometimes think that this is a, a completely new and unprecedented situation for us. A hundred years ago, the vast majority of British subjects were neither white nor Christian. I mean, this is, this is not a new situation for us. We live in a world where, you know, there are some people like like Chuck who would have lived for 
many generations in a particular area, they'll be drinking coffee from Rwanda. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is this is this is globalization. You can't reverse it, and you don't want to reverse you, it. You, why would you want to reverse it? Uh, I mean, the po- all all globalization is is the removal of barriers. All it says is that if you want to buy Rwandan coffee. No one should should come between you and the supplier and f- forbid you for it. No one's forcing you to. George the Third tried to come between the supplier for a, for a less good beverage. I don't think that's quite right. Actually, he, the the the, uh, the the Boston Tea Party was triggered by a lowering of the duty oh, on really? tea. Yeah, yeah. The British government at the time was applying the Laffer curve avant la lettre, um, and this was very bad news for the smugglers, of course. And that was oh, really? the, that was the trigger for the seventeen seventy three. Yeah. So it was they were protesting against market liberalisation. Yes. Ah. Yes, it's one of the one of the dirty secrets of that whole. Uh, episode. They kept that one quiet. They yeah. they've kept it quiet to this day. Um, yes, the, the 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 British government basically had withdrawn most of the objectionable tariffs, uh, kept one or two to maintain the principle that Parliament could could tax, lowered it to a level where they could actually collect it because it was no longer uh, punitive, and of course that. <laughs> But I mean, you know, but but it is worth making this point about consent and and voluntarism. You know, when when people say we're going to be forced to eat chlorinated chicken and and, and hormone treatment, what means the inspector's going to stand there saying, "Come on, finish your chicken." I mean, you know, all the, all that that free trade argues is that you should lift barriers and allow people to make the choices that they want rather than telling them what to do. This is the ridiculous argument against protectionism, all the debate about Britain allowing American approved food produce into our food chain. At no point when I've been over here have I hesitated about eating. And and not as anybody, right? I mean, this is what's so appalling is when when you see, you know, People who should know better, sort of Nick Clegg type people, who you know he lives in California. I, I, Does he ban his family from eating? American there's no food? evidence that he bans his family from eating while they're in California, and yet he will go out and say, oh, "Well, I don't think people will like it." You know, if they if they're told that they must say, "Oh, come on," it's you know, a bit like Facebook. You well, don't like it, don't you? Yeah, yeah, but, 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 but people are not idiots, you know. And and the vast majority, I mean, British, you know, mo- most British people have at some point been here. They know people here. They have family in the U.S. You know, so they know that this is rubbish and. Voters don't respond well to being treated like fools. Fantastic. It's been wonderful having this fireside chat with you. Fantastic. Slightly better studio than the one we normally use. And uh, Isn't it great to have a literal fireside chat? Yeah. I think the viewers will conclude that my fires are a bit better than yours. They're a little bit like the flintlock. Um, I was a better marksman than you, and I think you had difficulty getting the fire going. And I had to <laughs> you actually, you actually had your fire go out until I rescued it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to edit this so it becomes <laughs> abundantly clear as to who's telling the truth there.